0: Thank you so much for downloading this episode of So What Do You Really Do, the podcast where I, your host, Ditter, Dennis Maller, speak to artists and entertainers about their day jobs. And on this episode of the podcast, I am speaking to former Boston comedian, now international touring comedian success, Alex Edelman. Uh, it was really great to talk to Alex. Him and I had, you know, barely crossed paths when he comes back to Boston a couple times a year. You know, I think we did a city side show together or something, but he's incredibly hilarious and a really nice guy. Uh, And I'm really glad we get to talk and have a real conversation, you know, mostly whatever we did was just kind of small talk and passing kind of stuff, you know, that you kind of do with people in your scene that you don't see uh, at all, really. Uh, So it was really good to catch up with him, see how he's doing during all of this quarantine. That's one of the things that we talked a lot about uh, where he was, because at the time of this, he was in the UK touring his new one man show just for us. Uh, which got cut short, obviously, because of COVID-19. So we talk about that. What things in the UK looked like during the beginnings of COVID, about him traveling, and of course, we talked about uh, his new album that is out now. Everywhere you can find a comedy album, it's out there. Find it. It's called Until Now. Also, we talked about his wildly successful internet show, Saturday Night Seder, which has, so far, raised $3.5 million for the CDC, um, is, is in the running for an Emmy. So... It's really great to talk to somebody who did something successful uh, and that is on a, a, a successful on a national scale, too. So I'm very happy for him. He was very open. There's a, a, a lot of exclu- well, not a lot. There's a few exclusives that we talk about here, things that he had not talked to anybody else about. Uh, and if you listen to his album, uh, I ask him a question at the end of the podcast that is related to album. So I do recommend you listening to his album until now, everywhere, iTunes, Spotify, Anywhere you can get it, of course, on his website, too. So go listen to his album. It's very well done. It's got a couple of really great funny stories, a couple of uh, a few incidents of just when you just walk into one of those dumb, insane events and you just it blows your mind and you can't control your anger. He has a couple of those on it. And it was a real delight. I got to listen to uh, to a preview of it because (laughs) I'm a member of journalism. Uh, actually, this interview is also in collaboration with, of course, Dig Boston, who I write for. So you can read our our shortened uh, conversation. And of course, if you're coming here from Dig Boston, thank you so much for listening to the full extended conversation I had with Alex. And I hope everybody, if you're joining us for the first time, thank you so much. If you like this, please you know leave a comment on whatever podcast aggregator that you are listening to this podcast on iTunes, Stitcher, Google Play, Pandora. Um, I Heart Radio. yes! My podcast is now on I Heart Radio, which is the company that not only fired me after 15 years of work with them, it is also the company that called the police to my house because they thought I was a domestic terrorist after they fired me. There's a great story that'll be coming to a comedy stage near you when all of this insanity ends. Or, you know, probably more likely to a Zoom show because that's the world we live in. Anyway, thank you so much for coming here. I appreciate it. Uh, If this is your first time listening, please, you know, subscribe uh, because I talk to a lot of artists and entertainers, mostly comedians, because that's who's in my wheelhouse about their day jobs, the things that we do during the day to support what we want to do at night, you know, back when some of us had day jobs. So anyway, thank you so much for listening. Please enjoy my conversation with comedian and TV writer Alex Edelman. How are you doing, by the way, buddy? It's good seeing you again.
1: Yeah, man. Thanks for having me. They yeah, were not a problem. They said your name, and I was like, oh yeah, sick, for sure.
0: Well, I, I, I got to open up with the question that we have to ask everybody in this time and day is like, how are you doing, which we all know is secret code for, are you sick or have you been sick
1: I haven't been sick I've traveled a lot more than I think most folks have I traveled from London to New York then New York to Boston then Boston to Los Angeles so I mean
0: yeah I noticed you were in LA right now what, what are you doing all the way out there uh, right now
1: I I, I uh, live out here I'm I'm back and forth between LA and sort okay. of the road or LA I guess and 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 uh, in New York I'm in LA and New York a lot.
0: Yeah, cuz I think the last time I ran into you when you came to Cityside or somewhere like that, um, back here in Boston, I thought you were living in Newark last time I talked to you.
1: I'm I'm always some I'm always somewhere different, but I keep a pl- I have a place here and I, I love it here. And there are a bunch of Bostonian guys out here, Mike Malloy and that. So oh yeah, nice. Mikey.
0: I actually I miss Mike. I wish he would visit more, but Me too. you know, traveling back is not as great as Well, yeah, that was the thing cuz I was looking you were in London doing a one-man show when COVID hit, right?
1: I was on tour in the UK, and yeah, I mean, I was in glad My last show was in Glasgow, and I shut everything down. And I got a couple of notes from people who are like, "Can't believe you! This is just a flu. I Can't believe you! You'd, <laughs> you'd stop. Can't believe you'd stop. stop. You know, stop touring. We don't want any cowards in the UK." And I was like, "Well, those cowards are all going to die." So, uh. <laughs> well,
0: what what did what did the beginning of COVID look like in the UK? Because I know, right how much it looked like here in the U S cause I've talked to a lot of people we've seen it, but in the UK there, I'm sure, I mean, in the middle of Brexit and all of this shit that's going on there, could, is this just added it, chaos or is it completely different chaos?
1: It was very 12 monkeys. Cause no one was sure what to believe about anything. Like I was staying with some friends when the news started to break and they looked at me like an intruder, you know, like no one was sure. <laughs> and it was a real thing. It was a real, like, It was a really weird moment. It was like a very strange time where no one was sure. No one was sure what it was going to be or how or or what was happening. And I think it just made people very scared. And uh, it was sad. It was a sad thing to to watch, but totally understood it. And getting out of the UK was insane. And and it's sad, man. It's so sad. It's so sad to watch a, a country sort of go down the rabbit hole in real time. And I'm sure people over here were experiencing the same thing, but but I was traveling the country, so I was watching different parts of the country respond to it, and also I was I was out in the clubs every night, or I was out in the comedy clubs and small theaters, so I saw things just start to slowly turn down and shut down, and that was wild. No, well,
0: I was going to ask because you were doing your one man show, your newest one man show, just for us out there, which um, is, as far as I know, is begot from a lot of current internet drama.
1: Oh dude. Yeah. Meaning of Nazis. That's what you're trying is it to, to call.
0: Is, is death threats from Nazis on Twitter. Is it fair to call that drama? Am I, am I, I mean, downplay? I haven't
1: gotten death threats since 2018. <laughs> I think I'm, I think I'm pretty in the, in the clear. And a lot of my enemies get suspended. A lot of my, <laughs> uh, it's one of those things where I can, I can never quite tell. I'm pretty active. Um, in in terms of for those not listening, I I went to a meeting of Nazis in Long Island City, and um and sat there for like an hour, and that's what the show's about, and uh it was really interesting, and I I would say that I'm active on on as an observer on a kind of a bunch of uh I I keep I keep tabs on Nazis on facebook and twitter and there are a couple of other nazi social networks that i that i sort of uh, that i sort of keep track of and there's a network called gab that's a nazi um that's sort of like i would describe it as nazi facebook and you know i'm on gab i've got a couple different gab accounts and i i keep track of of where they're of what they're up to and what they're saying and i think it's important to do that and it's fun and it's fun and interesting because uh, it's because you're always like, well, at least they're open with it. It's the mo- worst most vile shit you've ever seen, but Nazis are the craziest. So yeah, I was touring that show.
0: When you snuck your way into that meeting, was it research purposes? Did you accidentally walk into it? What how so, wh- how and why did you go to a, a Nazi rally being a very openly orthodox Jewish man?
1: Well, you know, someone had tweeted I got some anti-Semitic abuse for something I uh, for some radio show I did or something like that, and so I just sort of I started adding these Nazis to a Twitter list, and I, I keep a list on Twitter. You can make your own lists, mm-hmm. and the list that I put all the uh, anti-Semites on um, are, are the list is called Jewish National Fund contributors, and so there are you know that name obviously is not something that most white nationalists are psyched about being added to. And so I get a lot of those folks that block me. But um, but some of them have, uh, you know, I'm just, I was about to pull up the list. I think I've got about, uh, I think I've got about 300 people on this list. And, and one of them tweeted, hey, if you're not ashamed of your whiteness, come to this address. And I was like, well, I'm curious about my whiteness. I should go to that address. <laughs> <laughs> also, I love doing stuff where I might die. Like, that's a big part of my uh, life. And even the album that's, that comes out, that's coming out, you know, I, I like stuff where there's a bit of danger or there's a bit of, um, I love awkwardness. I love a little bit of uh, tension or uh, silence or, you know, uncomfortable stuff. And... And so I think that, like, that that was a really perfect space for me because, you know, I like it. I like I sort of love those, like, gray spaces where people aren't sure what to say or what to do, because I kind of I know who I am. And I I don't know. I just I like those things.
0: Well, it's yeah. Well, some people pay to jump out of airplanes for thrills uh, or you could just go to a rally where if they find out you uh, find out that you're the exact thing they hate that they'll kill you for it. Yeah. So yeah, oh, now no, I get no, the no, other no, thrill. No, There's never any real
1: fear that I'd be killed. And <laughs> I never, I never, uh, I never felt yeah. that walking in there. There's, um, I've only been, I, I, I wasn't afraid for my life. There was a moment where I was like scared, but you know, but, um, but no, I I would, I, I was, I should say that in fairness to these Nazis, which is not a <laughs> sentence you want to say all the time. <laughs> in fairness to these Nazis, I didn't think they were going to kill me.
0: Well, yeah, Well, you have a, you know, we're, in the precipice right now of a, a huge Black Lives Matter movement uh, going on in this country right now, and it's we're seeing the ugly face of a lot of racist people right now with sure you know, the the thin blue line and all lives matter and all that stuff, and it's it's weird that all of this hatred is so in our face and open right now because I'm. It, when you talk to the, the the to when you listen to racist people talk against the black lives matter movement it's very much they hate them because they think that they are lesser than white people which is insane and stupid to think
1: well, anti-semitism is when, when you th- you think you think that sorry what do you mean what do you mean Dennis?
0: well a, a lot of racist people think that black people are beneath them that's why they hate them
1: sure i think yeah. a lot of racism comes out of fear though right yeah
0: and I, it's always and, you know, I, and I'm not Jewish. I had one Jewish uncle. He died when I was six. Sorry um, about that. I, I was well, <laughs> uh, well. I remember the. Well, I, 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 I almost like, oh, go did. Ahead, go ahead, go no, ahead. I, I almost did a bit where it's like when I was six, they do the the one scoop at a time thing, and I, my real thought at six years old was like, "Man, this is gonna take a long time" because I didn't know anything about Jewish funerals. I didn't mean to do bit. That's funny. What I meant to say was, it's interesting. Anti-Semitism is interesting to me because when you listen to to. People complain about that. It's because, oh, we hate the Jews because they run the media. We hate the Jews because they're successful. They own the banks. They own the Jews. They all the thing. And it's weird that we have racists that look at everybody else of color as being beneath them, but then look at hate the Jews for the same reason because or hate the Jews just as much because they think they're better than white people. It's a
1: weird interesting I think insane that, thing. I didn't mean to open with
0: anti-Semitism. We just kind of walked into no, it. No, <laughs> no.
1: I mean, I'll say this about I, I think applying a blanket rule to racism is 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 dangerous because you could leave something out or, or put something in. But, but I'll say that I think a lot of racism uh, comes comes in and out of fear. People are afraid of something. People are uh, people don't understand something, and so it, it scares them. Or people attributing positive attributes to a group of people or negative attributes to a group of people. they those are both racist things, and so. Yeah. Um, you know i don't know if people think that black people are beneath them but they've ascribed a set of values to black people or a set of attributes to black people based on something that may have nothing to do with the individual and so that is you know that's a form of racism and the same goes for judaism let's say Go, or Sorry, the same goes for anti-Semitism, the same goes for, you know, sort of anti-Latino sentiment or anti-Asian sentiment and a lot of positive, set, you know, model minority stereotypes described to Asian American people. And so, you know, it's it's a weird because I, I think that uh, people aren't sure right now about um, I think there are and also there are always people who I think have genuine uh, concerns that aren't necessarily based in fact but they're convinced of them and i think we're seeing some of those in sort of the responses to black lives matter i'm 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 really i made this passover thing and i'm not oh, sure yeah, by if the way congratulations
0: it. on that yeah a saturday night Seder yeah. Raised what over three million dollars now, and it's being nominated yeah, we, for an Emmy. We raised
1: a lot of money for the CDC Foundation, and please let's talk about that. But we also <laughs> we also donated the proceeds from the songs that we released from that to the for um to a great group called Jews for Racial and Economic Justice, and so that has been the response to that has been illuminating as well. But yeah, um, let's the racism and anti-Semitism. People are gonna be like, this guy's a fucking comedian. <laughs>
0: I, well, I was going to work my way into to, sure, to the, to the Saturday Night Seder thing, which I think let's talk about Judaism and then talk about the most Jewish thing ever, Seder, uh, <laughs> which I, I mean, I know you you were writing for a TV show previously, so it's not uh, unheard of that you would have, you know, that they would have reached out to you. But what who and how did they reach out to you about writing for Saturday Night Seder?
1: So my buddy Benj Pasek is a well. He saw me do some stand up. He's uh, and and we became friends that way. He wrote him and his partner Justin Paul wrote the music for La La Land, Greatest Showman, Dear Evan Hansen, and Aladdin. You know, different type of great great stuff. And Benj is like thirty five, and he's won a Grammy and Oscar and a Tony. He's a freaking genius. Oh, wow. And you know, he's won an Oscar. Dude has an Oscar in his house. And he's just the greatest guy, nicest guy. And um, and we were talking at the beginning of quarantine. I was bummed because I had canceled the rest of this tour and sort of holding up in my apartment in New York. And Benj was like, "Hey, uh, what are you doing for Seder this year?" And I was like, "I don't know, man." And we sort of put together this um, this online Passover. Seder. Well, we recorded. We, we we got a writers' room together. Benj and Adam Cantor, who's another producer, and a bunch of folks. Uh, so many talented uh, writers and producers. We we like basically had a writers' room and made a variety special, a comedy variety special, out of the Passover Seder, and it was awesome. Like it was really fun, and we put a bazillion celebrities in because we asked like a couple celebrities, and then. That Benj knew, and one or two folks that I knew, and then they asked their buddies, and and like then we asked a couple people through like casting agent, and people were like, "It's for charity, sure." And so we put in like we had like Adina Menzel, Nick Kroll, Bette Midler, um, Josh Groban, Darren Criss, Rachel Brosnahan from Mrs. Maisel, um, just all these great. Um, and Sarah Silverman found the Afikoman in her asshole, like, which was the <laughs> coolest thing in the world. And very Sarah Silverman. <laughs> oh, totally. We were like, Sarah, find it wherever you want. And Ben was like, you know, it's going to be dirty. And it was amazing. <laughs> she found it. It's one of the funniest things. The, the whole thing was, it was funny and it was moving because we put in a bunch of rabbis and Reza Aslan, who's like an incredible intellect. And it raised uh, like And we streamed it on YouTube and it raised like three and a half million dollars for the CDC Foundation or somewhere between three and three and a half. I can't tell where we are right now, but it's still raising money. That's great. So cool. It's
0: interesting that, you know, during this quarantine, so many people have put together Zoom, Twitch, Instagram shows and stuff. And you guys put together a YouTube show. That has a very niche audience.
1: Yeah, for sure. Jews. And
0: it's wildly successful. And that's great. And I'm happy to hear that when when, when somebody uh, from uh, somebody that I know does something well that, that turns out to, to do a successful. Because trust me, I've done entirely too many Zoom shows to the one person hosting the Zoom show. So. Oh, totally, man. <laughs>
1: but it was so fun to be, you know, because I was home in Boston. I got back to New I flew back to New York because I had a flight booked to Boston. But I showed up at the airport and they're like, every flight is canceled um you just just let let us get you out of here they, I flew into Newark and it was like a ghost it was a ghost town it was crazy and it was scary like I got off the plane and there was people in like full body white suits taking your temperature like no one knew what it was I had to go through customs because they were like you want to tell us why you've been to every city in England and I was like well I was on a tour
0: uh, oh yeah I guess you got to declare a lot of well, I guess it's all on your passport or
1: yeah, you have well, to just No, but they were Accidentally like, tell them. They're like, "Have you been in any city other other than London?" And I was like, "Yeah." And they're like, "Which ones?" And I was like, "I have a list of 32." And they're like, "What the hell?" <laughs> but so I got I was in I was in New York and then uh, and then I slathered a rental car in Purell and I got from New York to Boston, I swear to God, in 2 hours and 28 minutes. Shut up. I put my foot down. I was out of the city in like seven minutes, which was insane.
0: You can't get out of the rental car place in seven minutes.
1: Dude, it was, it was, I've never seen New York so empty. It was eerie. Like people will, will hopefully forget how I was in New York for two and a half weeks or so. Like I would go out on the street for 45 minute walks around 10 o'clock at night just to get out of the house because no one was sure what quarantine meant or lockdown meant. And New York was a hot spot in those early days. And I would see five people, six people for walking around Manhattan, 45 minutes, five people and like busy parts of Manhattan. I walked through Times Square. Nobody. It was like, it was like a, it was like, I am legend. It really felt like that. And so, but you know, it was nice to get home to Boston and I was in Boston for like three months and it was kind of cruel irony because, you know, March, March, April, March to April, April to May, May to June. Yeah. I was in, I was in Boston for for two and a half months or so and it, it was, and it's weird because to me Boston, I always associate it with you know, cityside comedy connection. Sorry, not the comedy connection. Um, Laugh Boston, uh, Comedy Studio, Comedy Connection. When I was younger, other things. Yeah. You know, I, occasionally I opened for Gulman at the Wilbur or something like that, or or, or Patton Oswald somewhere, and, and and like there was no comedy, nothing was happening. I didn't see Dan Bulger, I didn't see Will Noonan, I didn't see any of my boys who who are still. We're still home. I didn't see... Man, it sucked. It really sucked to not... Uh, to be back in, in Boston and sort of be trapped in this sort of like childhood home groundhog's day. Yeah, yeah
0: well, for you who visits, you know, two, three times a year, oh, specifically yeah. to see family and comedy, and then to only have half of that, I imagine it's very upsetting and very weird for somebody, especially when you're traveling around seeing every different city and different scene and how, you know, how much it's progressed. So yeah, I can understand, you know, I, I, I only know what it's looked like from Alston because that's where I've been the past four months. I
1: was roller. I got, I got a pair of rollerblades my third week and I started rollerblading around, but I rediscovered sort of Boston from the street level up, but there was nowhere I could go. Like I was, I was rollerblading around Alston, Brighton, I would go hiking every single week, at least once a week. I went to like Purgatory Chasm in Western Massachusetts. I I went on uh, – I went to the Blue Hills. People don't realize how much good hiking there is. Like one of the best hikes I did was like in Medford. I went to like – there is there is incredible hiking in Medford that no one would know about. But, but I sort of discovered Massachusetts, but I missed all the people, you know? So. Yeah. Yeah.
0: Were, you, uh, were you worried about your family at all, I guess? Were you worried about... it? Was your family worried at all? Because they have only seen the scope of what it looked like here, which is, compared to the rest of the country, has been very... Uh, has not been as dangerous here or as bad here as it is in other countries or other cities because, you know, we kind of took this serious, and when we took it serious from the beginning, we just didn't really see the horror shit show that some of this has been across the country.
1: No, my dad's a doctor. So I'm worried about that a little bit. He works at Brigham and, and, and that was, uh, I put him in the Seder. He's the last guy he, 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 and his hospital staff at Brigham woman's are, are the last people who offer sort of well wishes in this Passover thing that we made and watching the video yesterday for some, for some panel we were doing made me uh, choke up a bit, but I, uh, No, no, I'm not. I'm not super worried about my my family. It was also it was also a little bit good to sit down and focus on stuff like this album is coming out partially because of that. You know, I finally sat down and looked at all the stuff that I've been working on. And uh, I had these recordings of some shows. I did some shows in Minneapolis and uh, at Acme. And I had these had all these sets And I picked my 22 favorite jokes or something. I picked all these bits that I really liked and, you know, and had some time to focus on. And so it was, it was good. That was good. I was able to rediscover my family and sort of like sit down and take stock of things. So that's why the album is coming out. It's very much like a quarantine album, I guess, Mm -hmm. you know. Uh,
0: On that. So what has been the process of releasing this album during a quarantine? Because usually when somebody releases an album, there's a live show, there's a push, there's physical items, there's a party. You're releasing this in the middle. You know, this is a recording from before quarantine that you're releasing in the middle of quarantine when you can't see or promote it. Is it making the promotion and uh, for this do you think more difficult than had you been able to tour around with it and talk about it? Um.
1: Yeah. I mean, I can't do Conan, which has been like a bit of a they've been a really wonderful place for me, Conan. They've, they've, they, they gave me my first two late night sets and, and, and I have huge Brookline affinity for the host himself and, (laughs) and, and the culture that they foster there is really, really wonderful. And, and not being able to do Conan or not being able to promote this album in more traditional ways is a shame, but, you know, we're trying to, we're trying to be nimble about it, trying to get people to, but yeah, by the way, everyone hates promoting stuff. I hate asking people <laughs> to buy things or watch things or listen to things. Like, like that sucks. It sucks going. Ahead. But the thing is, this is this is the first you know six seven years of my comedy life, and it, the album is good. You know, I'm really happy with uh, with where the bits are uh, on on the album. But yeah, rolling it out in a time where you can't get together, it's it's the it's the pits. You know, I can't I can't have a physical show. I can't appear on anything. I just have to I just have to zoom back to Boston with a with a cheap with a cheap external mic and some <laughs> earbuds I stole from a southwest flight. <laughs> now, this is my life now. I do these my skin's breaking out, I'm eating like shit, you know? This it's, this press tour sucks. <laughs>
0: it's,
1: it's the saddest
0: press tour ever. Yes, yeah, it's not, it's
1: not bad. It's nice to see. It's nice to have something to do in in quarantine. It's nice to have people to talk to instead of just sitting and writing. But holy moly, it's um, you know, holy well, moly, people, is it uh, it's like a thing.
0: Some people have you know found new hobbies and and focused in on different things to try and keep themselves occupied during quarantine like what i did is you know i doubled down on doing uh uh sketch and videos and trying to do more
1: podcasts and stuff how's and that going I, how's the sketch going
0: uh well i did three at the beginning i released three of them at the beginning one of them was an idea i had for years and i finally just did it all by myself and they all went fine they you know it helped me to re um refamiliar myself with premiere because i took it in college and then i didn't touch it since 2005 and I'm like, oh, this is a lot different than I remember it. So it was a lot of like practicing, exercising, doing stuff like that, uh, which was fun. I picked up the ukulele. So now I'm learning this because uh, I'm not talented enough to learn the real guitar. So I no, took a half ass guitar. But so, so I, you know, a lot of people are finding different activities to keep themselves sane and occupied during quarantine. Is there anything in particular that you started doing other than the album? Was there anything that you started doing? that was helping you maintain some level of sanity?
1: I mean, yeah. This'll sound so pretentious, but a lot of the folks that I've connected with who are experts and stuff, I've sort of strong armed them into giving me lessons. Like uh, one of my favorite people who worked on the satyrs, this guy, Josh Harmon, he's a great playwright. So every week we read a play and we discuss it. And so I have homework, I have classes and I keep a pretty sturdy to-do list uh, of my projects and, you know, I focused on them. So there's a lot of writing and a lot of reading every day, but also like, you know, every Sunday, Michael Solomonoff was one of my favorite chefs. uh, He and I cook something on FaceTime because we did the Seder also. So like, and I've spent a lot of time talking with my friends, like Gary Goldman and I spend a, a lot, you know, now phone calls that were 10 minutes, they're hour long phone calls. Yeah. So Gary Goldman and I speak a lot, and my friend Hunter, my friend Morgan, my friend like a lot of the guys and girls. My friend Catherine Gallagher, who's an actress, she's she was on Broadway and it shut down, and so now you know we sort of get nourishment from long Facetimes. And uh, you know the news is so depressing, but of course everyone's addicted to it. I'm like, I'm addicted to new. The way you get off the phone now is different. The way you get off the phone is insane now i'm just like okay i'm done talking we've talked for too long goodbye like you used to have to have an excuse but now you can just be like this is too long this is an <laughs> hour i'm dipping i had a phone call with my friend jen the other day two hours and 49 minutes Jeez. yeah we we're redesigning a website but still i mean like uh like these are the longest my phone if phone bills were still by the minute
0: Well, I, dude, there's nothing pretentious about that at all. I mean, in the beginning of May, at the beginning of May during all this, that's when I started like just shooting out messages, random messages to people like, hey, thinking of you, hoping you and all are healthy and happy. Take care. Talk to you soon. Like just, I sent out so many random messages to people in the beginning of May. And then I also just, like, I am very much not Facebook happy birthday kind of person. And every day now I'm sending people messages, happy birthday, saying, hey, I'm hoping you're healthy and happy because we Good are. Good for you, a time... man. Good for you. Yeah, well, Seriously. Yeah. And there and there's, you know, like you connecting with your friends. There's nothing wrong with that at all or pretentious. You know, it's nice to see that a lot of people are feeling a reason to be more connected with each other. So uh, now I know you used to write for the TV show, The Great Outdoors.
1: The Great um, Indoors, baby. Great
0: Indoors. Sorry. Yeah. Uh the uh the the 30 minute LL Bean commercials.
1: <laughs> there were a lot there was a lot of LL Bean in that show. It was a show about Joe McHale as sort of a r- rough and tumble outdoorsy reporter who's now a boss of millennials in an office. Yeah.
0: What's the difference between writing uh for the great indoors as opposed to writing for, you know, an internet show like Saturday Night
1: Seder. Oh, dude. I mean, writing for that, writing for conventional TV and I've done a couple of times, I've got, I've been, I was writing on a Netflix show that comes out pretty soon called Teenage Bounty Hunters, which is a dramedy. Every project is different. And that project was really cool. It was a multi-camera sitcom, which means a film in front of a live studio audience. And I got to spend a lot of time with, you know, really, really, some of the funniest people on the planet work on these shows. And some, uh, some people who aren't funny work on these shows, like everything. Our writer's room was so talented. Our actors were Stephen Fry, Christopher Mintzplass, who's famous for playing McLovin, Christine Coe, who's on that show Dave now, and Joe McHale. And a guy named Sean Brown, who's who's really talented and has done a bunch of stuff since then, too. That the, that was our core cast. And Stephen Fry is, like, one of the great comedy geniuses of all time. And so, like, yeah. to watch him work was uh, on a live stage. And Andy Ackerman, our director, did 100 episodes of Seinfeld, like – It was sick. Like every day was, every day I went to work just thrilled. And at lunch, I'd take a golf cart out. It was my first real writing job. And I was losing my mind because I was having so much fun. I missed it a lot. Um, The Seder was kind of my vision a bit in the way that The Great Indoors was not. And that's how it's supposed to be. But like, because I wasn't, I was a staff writer, I was the, the sort of lowest rung on the totem pole. And, Uh, I made a lot of mistakes because I was so uh, new. And you make mistakes in everything. And a lot of the lessons that I learned from my showrunner on The Grand Doors, Chris Harris, you know, I applied to running this little room, even though it was an internet show. Like TV jobs are all different, writing jobs are all different, but you do learn lessons from every one that are applicable in every other one. So like I, I, I actually sat down a couple months ago and made a list of everything I did wrong in my various jobs. And I was like, all right, let's make sure we try not to make some of these same mistakes again. Like I pitched and pitched and pitched on The Great Indoors. I was just constantly a volume pitcher. Maybe even being a bit too candid. But like, uh, because in comedy, in the jobs I've had before that, it was a volume pitch thing. And, you know, I think towards the end of the room, I started to realize that because, you know, I'd never been in a writer's room before. I started to realize that it's better if you don't have the right joke, just get out of the way because someone else will pick you up. And also be forgiving of other people when they pitch bad jokes because they're funny people anyway. And they're like, I don't know, man, like they're the, the bad lessons that you learn, the lessons that you learn about yourself in, in every room is really important. They move you towards the you towards growth. And and so writing on the Seder was great because there was no one to check me because the room was fairly egoless, right? Like even though I'm like listed as head writer, everyone, I, I just, I just, and I was just the one who had the most time to do the work that anyone else could have easily done. Like it would be, it would be insane of me to be like, I was a head writer because I had the most expertise, but because it was an egoless room, I tried to remember that, you know, it is good to have somebody to check you because you, because you learn that way. So, you know, we spent a lot of time in this room arguing and, and that arguing was great and, um, and would have never happened, uh, sort of in a room that's more of a conventional television room where you need to sort of follow the showrunner's vision because they're the only ones who can really, uh, get their arms around the whole thing that so in a short answer to your question the Seder was far more collaborative than a conventional television project or any tv room that i've worked on but you know i took all the lessons from those conventional tv projects and tried to apply them to the Seder. how's that for an answer dennis
0: perfect i loved it it's, it was it was, long. it was everything i wanted it to be when i wrote that question um so we heard your list of all the talented people you work with let's hear the list of the untalented people you worked with that you mentioned before no <laughs> Oh, dude. <laughs> Spill that tea. No.
1: I don't know, uh, man. I've worked with – the funny thing is almost everyone I've ever worked with has been talented. Not everyone I've ever worked with has been <laughs> nice, you know, like I'm – or or like a good person, you know. I opened for Ryan Adams, and he was like my favorite musician, and I so admired him and so wanted to like him, and he turned out to be a real piece of shit. And so like, uh, you know, and that was really and, – and that was really illuminating to see that on the road – was really hard yeah opening for him and i opened for him at the state theater in portland and like it was just a really ugly experience and i can't stand it it's the finding is, talent is john Baldessari is one of my favorite artists and he likes to say that talent is cheap and that is so true like talent is cheap and and there are a lot of untalented people who are who you'd much rather work with than, than talented folks but yeah sorry my unsolicited ryan adams rant
0: but, no, please. Uh, because I, I got to, uh, I was fortunate enough to listen to uh, a preview copy of the new album coming out. Oh, shit. And there's, there's two really good stories about meeting famous people. And I've heard you talk about other uh, famous people you've ran into. So you have a nice list of awkward uh, celebrity run-ins. So that Ryan now just adds to the story. Yeah.
1: <laughs> the thing is you never lose in in Los Angeles and New York you run into these evil and if you're if you're a fucking outsider you'll never lose that sense of holy shit I shouldn't be meeting these people <laughs> but that Obama thing—I met Obama, which I think is what's listened, which is which is the track, one of the tracks on the album, when I was uh, his, when I was volunteering for his presidential campaign. Brilliant! And I met man. Neil Armstrong when I was a kid in a museum, so those aren't exactly the most glam. <laughs> I, I mean, the, I wasn't exactly in a position of power, but that Neil Armstrong story is oh, one of my favorite bits. You know how you end fantastic. up with the, the first bit that that kills—that's what you use. And also, all my stories are about almost all my stories are about about encounters. My comedy is very is not is not very observational. My comedy is more documentary style. It's about meeting people and, and 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 seeing through that and seeing the world through these encounters. And so, you know, I think if you took this album and you, I think pretty much every joke is about an interaction with someone as opposed to something. I don't really do jokes about some things. I do jokes about some ones. And yeah, Obama and Neil Armstrong are the two two on this album that are the bold facers, though.
0: Yeah, they are. The album is very, or your comedy in general is very autobiographical. Mine's very, very slimmer in that way where I found, and what my big problem with the beginning of the quarantine was I wasn't writing any new material for months because I wasn't doing anything. I wasn't having any experiences. Was that a worry or a concern during some of this of having not having anything to write or not having anything to come out at the end? All of this was something new. Was that a concern? Because some people were inspired by this, others haven't been.
1: It's interesting, you know. It does, like you say, like my comedy is about interaction, and so, uh, and so in in so many ways, my comedy is about other people. And even though it is autobiographical, it's about it's about the lives that other that the people I'm meeting are about the lives they're living. And so a lot of these a lot of people I'm meeting, and this will sound maybe a bit cold, their lives have been really complicated by this. And so that's really interesting. I I have been not face to face encountering these folks, but you know, I went out there to those protests on Boston Common and 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 got into a little bit of trouble on Charles Street and during one of the protests and and when it was happening, I was like, right, I miss this. I miss this energy of like, I'm only half kidding when I say I like comedy. I, I like a life experience, a little bit of risk in it because I do, you know, um, it, it's not it's not I don't ever want to put anyone else at risk. I'm firmly in favor of wearing a mask, but uh, but I like I like a little bit of unrest or, or discomfort. And so and so I think people are or I mean, artistically, not in real life. And so i think people are going through that right now where their di- where their discomfort levels are very high and 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 talking to folks who are living in that that discomfort level um is interesting for me so i mean uh, yeah yeah i'm I'm with you dennis i'm not i'm not having the same i'm not having the same sort of fr- fruitful interaction but you know i'm i'm having lived experience and so are you and when the time is right to write about those lived experiences you will like Like the Seder was a lived experience, even though it was entirely online, you know, um, traveling during this time was a lived experience living at home with my family for for two and a half months for the first time since high school. That was a lived experience like this quarantine has put shortages on a lot of things and things that seemed essential will, will seem very, very easy to get rid of and things that seemed so supremely important will go away. But yeah, I think we'll all come out of this with with it with different perspectives, and uh, and who knows what that what that'll what that'll lead to.
0: The positive way of looking at that—that's yeah. what I like to hear from people—is the positivity that we're trying to muster up during all this. Sure. As someone who's been in a couple writer rooms, do you think that COVID's going to change the way writer rooms are? Do you think there's going to be in the future less getting together and sitting in offices pitching ideas, and it'll be more online? Do you think we'll all go back to normal after all of this is done and said, what do you think your opinion on how the writer room is going to look
1: after COVID? That's such a good question. I haven't thought about it that much, but, but I, I do think that the nature of meetings will change. Um, people, people don't need to be in the same place anymore. Pitches over the phone and or via zoom will become more and more commonplace. In some ways they're better for people to share resources there's a thing about writer's rooms, though, where a lot of good stuff in writer's rooms comes where you grab the showrunner after the room breaks for lunch and goes, hey, you know, this may be nothing, but I was thinking this morning in the shower, how about this? And the guy goes, that's not right, but, you know, what about that? And then you go back into the room and, and this sort of chance encounter, the, the, the stew of all that leads to something. But there's also something that's said for – you know, being focused and, and sort of sitting around. And I think it's much easier when everyone's comfortable and when there's no ego. So, so the dynamics will change. Um, The dynamics of writer's rooms are certainly going to change. I I don't know what it will mean. I have no idea what it's going to look like, but. But yeah, I think something's going to, I think something, something will be different. I think when people can convene for writer's rooms again, they totally will, but I'm sure this will now be seen as a viable option for people doing remote writer's rooms. So, and we'll see what the, what happens to productions that use this process going forward. If there are some big hits that did remote writer's rooms, then sure. Um, say hello, say hello to 24 hours zoom.
0: <laughs> yeah, because I'm an actor and I'm listening to a lot of the SAG conversations right now and the contracts trying just here in Massachusetts to get back to work. And there's a lot of conversations like, um, you know, crew members are going to be on, uh, going to be quarantined together during productions. So while you're on set, you're living in housing with the rest of the crew and for actors, sure. they're talking about, um, stand-ins doing the same thing. Background, you know, may be greatly reduced and stuff like that. So it's, I can see where we're talking in, in all the people who work on set, how their lives are being changed by like this. But it's interesting how I think maybe the pre-production world may be the best equipped to adapt to whatever our new normal will be. Uh, and then finally, just talking, you were, you brought up your dad earlier, um, and he's a very successful uh, man here in Boston. Great guy. Um, a very successful doctor here in Boston, very well known and, and respected. When you started really diving into comedy, was there a concern from your family about, a lot of families are like, no, you can't be in entertainment. You have to follow the family thing. Or you, we didn't work hard for you to go to school to tell jokes. Was that a good
1: Like, I've never experienced that. I've never experienced that from my family. And I also don't know many people who have said, oh, man, my, my you know, my friend Phil Wang is a really funny British comedian, has a great joke about his dad going, about going You know, saying, Hey, dad, don't you want me to do something incredible and professional? And his father's like, Son, I want you to do whatever makes you happy. He's like, Fuck you, dad. You know, like, can't even give me this. Like, I think my parents are sort of the same way in that they were so supportive. Um, Well, you know what? They were worried when I started showing an interest in it because. They're concerned in the same way that all parents are concerned for their kids about a job. But if I said, or oh, they didn't want me going into comedy, I, I think I'd be I'd be lying. My dad, I think every parent just wants their kids to be happy and fulfilled and secure. And my dad's like, "Hey, if you can make a living doing this," I will say that my mom is so psyched when my writing work vests my health insurance <laughs> in a way that she's not psyched when like an album comes out. Like she doesn't she doesn't give a shit about like album I'm press she's just like oh my god you mean you got blue cross blue shield for another 12 months <laughs> Alex, aren't you so excited like my parents are just happy when like good life shit happens I'm like alex oh my god is that money gonna go to your pension tell me the money's gonna go to your they get so so am for like boring life stuff but they're like very down they're very happy with what i do all my friends who are musicians and comedians who know my parents absolutely love them think they're great and so like my dad's a dad my mom's a mom They're exactly how your dad and mom are probably. They're like a bit corny, a bit goofy, a bit literal. They like the comedy they like. But they've like got good taste too. You know, like they love weird offbeat comedy now. They're like – they're real snobs. They like, you know, Gary Goleman. They like Maria Bamford. They like – you know, they like the odd British comedians that I show them. My mom's favorite comic is Stuart Lee, who's like a really alternative, obscure, who's a British comedian who's almost not mainstream enough for me. <laughs> like, my mom loves his stuff. And, like, I'll tell you this really quickly. Um, <laughs> my uh, I took my mom to see... I was dating this woman, a really lovely uh, comedian. Stuart Lee's wife is this woman named Bridget Christie, and I kind of idolize Bridget and everyone kind of idolizes Bridget. She's genius. She's she's the soul of alternative, but she's not snobbish or elitist. She she's just a great comic. And she's won the Perrier, which is the biggest award for comedy that you can win in the UK and so my girlfriend and I take my parents to see Bridget do a show in Edinburgh during the festival. And it's like, you know, it's just a great get. We're psyched to be able to get my parents in. But Bridget is talking about British politics. My mom and dad don't know crap about British politics. This is, you know, 2015. And at the moment, labor was trying to pick a leader. And they would eventually settle on Jeremy Corbyn, which was, you know, not – which did not totally end well, but – um they and but at the time they have a bunch of choices and Bridget does a joke about how picking a late leader for labor is like picking a cat a tap out of a kitchen catalog and my mom is laughing her ass off and I'm like what do you know Cheryl Edelman what do you know about picking a picking a (laughs) leader for labor you're laughing and like after the show my mom is like we need to meet Bridget and I was like what? Like you've gone a million shows. You're going to, this is the one. And she's like, I have to meet Bridget. And so I bring my mom over to this, like basically comedy role model for me. And my girlfriend is just, she's just like, how is this going to go? And this is so funny to me. My mom says to Bridget, Bridget, hi, I'm Alex's mother. I have to tell you, we identified with everything you said. And I'm looking at her and my dad even is looking at her like, what's this wee shit? Like, what are you talking about? She's like a lefty political comic. You're like a middle of the road suburban mom. And my mom goes, my favorite joke was that joke you told about picking a leader for labor. And I was like, you don't know what labor is. You've never, you don't barely understand the party politics. What are you talking about? And then she continues. She goes, when we had to pick a tap for our kitchen out of the catalog they all look the same how are you supposed to tell and bridget was like oh my god right like <laughs> all the tops look the same and so my girlfriend i look over at my girlfriend and she's just she's just curling up and if there was a hole she would have disappeared into it immediately she's 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 got murder in her eyes looking at me and my mom and bridget are bonding over picking a tap out of a kitchen catalog and every time I see Bridget now, she's like, "You know, I love your mother. How's your mother?" <laughs> it's so funny to me. It's the coolest story in my comedy life. I think it's so great. Oh, that was so
0: heartwarming. Yeah. Oh, I'm glad I asked. It's very nice.
1: <laughs> yeah, I'm glad you did too. I, I don't think I've ever told that story, but uh, but yeah, my mom, my mom and dad are cool. All
0: right. Well, it's good. It's been good catching up with you. If people who are listening, the album is out now. How can they get until now? Where can they listen to it?
1: Um, they can go to my website, alexedelmancomedy.com, or they can check me out on social media, uh, Alex Edelman on Twitter or at the Alex Edelman Instagram. But, you know, my favorite, uh, it's streaming. So you can find it on Spotify. You can find it on Pandora. Um, it's spinning on Sirius occasionally. Please, please, please go. And you can download the album on iTunes if that's still a thing <laughs> that you do. So please, please do awesome. that. Awesome.
0: Well, it was great catching up with you. I'm glad you've been staying healthy and staying busy. And once this is all done, uh, hopefully by Thanksgiving, um, you'll come back around. And uh, oh, I think we need to let in one. Since I got to listen to the album, and I hope everyone who listens to the album after this uh, goes listen to the album after this conversation. Let's get one secret from the album uh, on the thing. What was the name of the pizza shop you did your first? Because you talk about your first open mic. What was the name of the pizza
1: shop? Rogie. Oh pizza shit! <laughs> in Cleveland Circle. Oh, was I it Rogie? I was the worst comic in the world i was like a child jono Zelay was occasionally there <laughs> alvin david was occasionally there mike kaplan would drop in and to me mike was like a god i couldn't ever imagine oh, Mike's the best like oh he's amazing but dude all of I cut my teeth at the music open mic at Rogie's Pizzeria, bombing my little teenage ass off every day, every Tuesday for two and a half years. I love <laughs> that place. Is it, it, I think it's it gone. It is totally gone. It makes me so sad. It was next to a blockbuster. No one else is going to ask me that question, <laughs> Dennis. Yes. Rogie's Pizzeria. In Cleveland Circle, the greatest, most horrible open mic you could ever possibly have gone to. A place where the, the stage, the floors, the walls, the chairs were different kinds of metal. <laughs> it was the worst place for comedy. You, can, I never saw anyone ever do well there. Never once. I never did well there. And for two years, I bombed my ass. After off, I, I moved
0: here from Baltimore, I, I went to Rogie's a couple of times because they were doing a comedy open mic there. And we were doing a, a terrible comedy open mic in the basement. And then just some like 17-year-old kid was upstairs in the dining room walking around trying to do close-up magic to people. Everything happening there was insane. I love that. And uh, just to, to catch you up on, do you know what happened to Rogies?
1: Dude, if this is some if this is some horrible criminal yep. shit, I'm going to be Very so much. upset. What, what happened? Basically, Basically what tell
0: happened me. was uh, some underage Irish kid got drunk there and instead of... Uh, throwing him out, the bouncers beat him up nearly to death and threw him out the alley and left him there to die. And that's what basically got them all shut down.
1: Did he die? I
0: don't think he died, but he almost did. I think that's what... Uh, the way I remember it is he almost died. I don't think he actually died, but they left him for death. Well,
1: I don't feel bad for him because I actually died at Rogie's every Tuesday for two years. No, no, that's 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 terrible but uh whatever <laughs> dude that was not a good place for stand-up but yeah
0: no it was Thanks not and it's that. right down the street man oh if i knew it was rogies i would have laughed ten times harder just knowing that you went
1: to rogies every fucking week oh i bombed i bombed there so hard it was so great which is why i love city Sykes, a warm and friendly room and it's around the corner from where Rogie's was. Oh, yeah. You could throw a rock and hit Rogie's. And I would, would like to. And I was super comfortable. You know, I'm super comfortable bombing at Cityside if I have to. It's a great place to try new material because my whole life in Cleveland Circle doing comedy has been trying new material there. So, yeah, I miss the old place. I'm psyched to, psyched to come home soon.
0: All right. Well, hopefully uh, we'll get together and, and we'll reminisce over bad Rogie sets when you do. So, all right, man. Good talk to you. Take care of yourself.
1: Thank you, man. All right. Bye.